0: You're listening to At The Mic with Keith, an independent podcast production.
1: And welcome to this edition of At The Mic. I'm your host, Keith Malinak. The voice you just heard before my own was that of Nick Daly. He's the voice at the front end and the back end of each and every At The Mic podcast. One of the voices you hear on The Blaze and so many other places. You're probably familiar with Nick's work and don't even know it. He's immersed in all things audio, hopes to write the music for a film someday, and in fact, his name is on a CD you may already own. I hope you enjoy getting to know the man behind the voice. Here's Nick Daly, my guest on this edition of At The Mic. I am joined by a very unique guest, and I say that, no pressure, Nick Daly. Uh, He's joining me right now the reason this is so cool is nick is the voice you hear at the very beginning in the very end of this podcast and i thought you know what i want to talk to nick i want to do one of these with him so here he is the voice you hear is a bookend on this podcast nick Daly, thanks so much for making time man i appreciate it yeah
0: thanks for having me on
1: absolutely okay so you are mr sound You are Mr. Audio. How did you first get into this business where your life is recording and editing and producing and creating? How did you first get into this world, man?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. I think I was kind of fascinated by sound as a kid you know, I, I found a recorder that my dad had <laughs> hidden in a desk drawer or something like that or maybe just stuffed in there for storage in it. and it was this old, like huge thing cassette recorder with this giant microphone <laughs> you know, from like the 70s and uh, I drug <laughs> yeah. it into my room and I would do these kind of like fake radio shows with myself basically and, and record them and try to figure out
1: <laughs> how it worked. <laughs> you and me both, brother. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was crazy. So, and I guess that just
0: kind of fascinated me, the ability to put yourself on tape and hear yourself back and it just, uh, you know, was That was something different. And then at some point in maybe when I was in middle school age, at some point, my mom had to get a second job. And so she took a job at a radio station doing the news broadcasts in the morning at like four o'clock in the morning, you know, for the early shift. So she would get up and go in there and sometimes we would have to go in with her. And so I would go in there and I, as soon as I saw that control room, I was just fascinated.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah. I can imagine that must've been really fun
0: yeah there's just so much equipment in there and you know for me being a button pusher i was like oh there's so many buttons
1: Uh (laughs) uh-huh so did you just end up growing up around radio stations then did your mom continue to to work at the radio station for a while no
0: you know she just did that one kind of local station in this small town that that we were living in and uh and i just kind of uh they used to go, they'd go to, this is probably makes vilifies me, but they used to go to, uh, we used to go to church on the weekends. And at some point I started asking my mom, hey, when you go to church on Sunday, can you just drop me off at the radio station and I'll sit in with this, <laughs> with this DJ named Chuck that, you know, that kind of trained her and maybe he can show me a few things. And uh, reluctantly she agreed after, after enough of my prodding. And so, and Chuck was nice enough to allow, allow me to stop by and he would show me, you know, how things work. And every now and then he'd sit back and let me run the the board and th- these are like boards that didn't even have faders they were the knobs like you know you turn yes. these knobs and, and of course you know i come to find out this was like a locally owned station that had been around forever so they obviously didn't have money to upgrade their equipment and it was like a little uh-huh. 5000 watt started. station yeah or something.
1: big old they call them pots yep Potentiometers. Uh, that's what they look like yeah. you know just the big old knobs uh that's an old school setup that you learned on uh no doubt so that is cool and you grew up in kentucky is that right
0: yeah yeah, both both uh, okay. eastern and western Kentucky. So at some point I moved to the other mm. side of the state for high school.
1: Have you had people in your life as you have gone along because I get asked this everywhere I go in radio. Where's your accent? Where's your accent? You're from Georgia, yeah. you know. Did people ever ask you like so why don't you talk All like this,
0: you know? Yeah, and it's funny <laughs> yeah. cuz I think going into radio actually made me lose the accent because I've heard, you know, my mom has recordings of me from You know when i was a kid and i had an accent at some point and so i don't i didn't consciously lose it but i think just kind of having to do you know maybe that whole thing where when you get in front of a microphone you change the sound change the sound of your voice and maybe part of that subconsciously was getting rid of my accent
1: yeah i wonder uh, that that's fascinating because i've never talked to someone who went through that as well but as you're telling your story i'm thinking of my own experience i have old cassette tapes where i totally I sound like this and I'm talking, you know, and and old home movies and stuff like that. I wonder how we lost that. Some subconscious thing where, like, we wanted to make it in this business. I guess so. And we realized subconsciously we couldn't keep sounding like that. I don't know. Yeah,
0: maybe. um, And there's definitely a kind of a a negative vibe if you have an accent, especially if you're doing voiceover. Right. Out there. They'll say, please, no regional dialects.
1: Oh, boy. I, that's, hmm, Okay. So I, I, I want to talk about all the stuff that you have done over your career because you have worked with some fascinating people. You've done so much. You've gone so many places. Let's stay in your childhood for just a second here. You do have uh, a younger sister and several um, step-siblings, mm-hmm. I guess, right? The modern family. Um, <laughs> the modern fit. Fa- yes, exactly. So... Are, are you close to them? I mean uh, how was your childhood uh, you got some memories you could share with us? Oh yeah, I mean my sister and I were, were only about a year apart
0: so we're, we were pretty close growing up. I was played the role of the typical you know jerk brother that <laughs> that that you know <laughs> would pick on her or whatever uh, out of obligation I guess but then defend her you know <laughs> on the other yeah, hand so that's so that was a pretty typical you know we but you know we, I was the generation that played outside. So we didn't have, Oh, you know, I mean, I didn't get a cell phone until I had a full-time job. So we, you know, we all had friends outside and, you know, I remember lots of mm-hmm. times going to play in the woods or, you know, whatever we
1: would do growing up. It's fun to hear you say that because, my gosh, there was actually life before Nintendo and PlayStation and so on. Mm-hmm. But did you ever grab any of your friends in the neighborhood or your sister or whomever and record with them just for the fun of it record like a radio show or or do anything like that
0: you know I never did because I was never really into the I guess I was at some point I was into being on the radio I wanted to be on the radio I thought this is this is what I want to do you know but then at some point I kind of gravitated away from that and I wanted to 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 be in the studio when I once I discovered editing so I never really got a group mm-hmm. of friends together and and had them do shows or anything, but I would have people come to me all the time and ask me if I could do, uh, do you remember, I guess Windows still has it, but Windows used to have where you could create your own startup sound. So when you started up the computer, you'd you know, have this custom file that would play. And so I, I had made one for myself and some of my friends were like, ooh, can you make me one? And they were just these little like combination of clips, movie uh-huh. clips and stuff with some music underneath
1: it that took me forever to make because, uh-huh. you know, I'm <laughs> just learning. Right. One of the things I ask is, you know, did you go to college, if so, and where? And you mentioned Full Sail University. Our own Chris Cruz at The Blaze mentioned that as a place he attended. Is this some sort of, um, I guess, um, audio-geared, broadcasting-geared school? Yeah, so they started... Uh, Is that that what that is? Yeah,
0: they started as a specifically focused in recording. And they were, they started in, in, I think they were Dayton, Ohio is where they first started. The guy wanted to expand and he figured maybe I should go to a place where it's kind of nice year round. So he moved to Orlando (laughs) and they expanded and it became wildly successful as a recording school. And so they started expanding into film and multimedia and game design and, you know, all kinds of stuff now. But it's typically a kind of a a very specialized, it's it's a technical school, but it is accredited. So you can gain credits and stuff uh going there but it's an accelerated program so you're going uh you're it's a 24 hour a day operation so you basically you'll have classes at three in the morning labs basically oh, or nine o'clock wow. at night and sometimes you'll have a 16 hour day with little four hour windows of breaks in, in between but they call that real world education because you know not a lot of times <laughs> in recording are you working nine to five
1: no no that's right and I don't know the last time I've had a full night's rest waking up at three in the morning (laughs) for the shift that I have, you know, but now how did you end up in Florida? If you were born and raised in Kentucky, how did you end up in
0: Florida? I specifically remember this and I don't know why, you know, you remember stupid things and you go, why did I remember that? But I I was sitting in a (laughs) law and justice class in ninth grade in high school and I had maybe discovered Mix Magazine for the first time. It's an audio magazine about you know, recording gear and mixing. And there was an ad for Full Sail in this magazine. And the picture, I think, was of maybe their Studio A, which is this beautiful solid-state logic board. And I just remember going, oh, my God. Like, a school has this? (laughs) And, you know, because at that point, my counselors had been going, oh, you should look into going to University of Kentucky. You should look into going to here and there. And and I was looking at these four-year programs where I had to take more, you know, stuff that I didn't need. And I thought I just I don't want to do that. But meanwhile, my mom worked for a university system, so she was very adamant that I go to a four-year school because that was that was what she did. And so mm-hmm. I kind of fought that because I said I do I want to go to this tech school. And so from about ninth grade, I had made up my mind that's where I was going when I graduated school, and I I tailored my high school career around that. I didn't take classes that oh, counselors were saying you have to take if you're going to make it into a university because I, I knew where I was
1: going. Good for you. And I was going to yeah, go whether nice job. whether
0: my parents wanted me to go or not. I was going to figure out a way to do it. Uh-huh. <laughs> I was determined at that point.
1: Uh-huh. And so you ended up in Florida. You went to school there. You've lived in California, I think, and now you're back in Florida. What's with going from coast to coast? What's that well, all about, So man?
0: Florida, I came here for school. And then before I finished... Uh, Before I had graduated from Full Sail, um, I had been pestering this guy in Orlando uh, for trying to get a job at a radio station because I, you know, I still was kind of had this radio passion. But I uh, so I thought, well, maybe I can make some money in radio while I'm starving, you know, going to school. And uh, Mm -hmm. and the guy just didn't have a job for me, but he was really understanding. And he he had heard that this guy named Eric Chase in Tampa was looking for an assistant. At the time, and so, legendary in the radio yeah. business. And I had heard of Eric, uh-huh. you know, uh, because he was just kind of the best there was. And so uh, I, uh, I, but he, not, this was unbeknownst to me. So I just received a random phone call uh, one day, and it was from Eric. And he said, "Yeah, this guy gave me your your name and said you have been really looking for a job and sent me your demo. And I, you know, I think you got some potential here. Do you would you be interested in coming over oh. for an interview?" And he was in Tampa, so. You know, one thing led to another and I ended up getting the job and uh, I moved to Tampa and then I stayed in Tampa for like 16 years.
1: Wow. And that's where you eventually would cross paths with Glenn Beck, if I'm not mistaken.
0: Yeah. So, yeah. And so I met Mm -hmm. Glenn in 2000 when he first started News Talk because he was coming out of top 40 at the time and was just starting his News Talk career. So he came to Tampa I was working for the Top Forty station there, and uh, but my boss Eric was handling both the talk radio station and the Top Forty station, so I would help out on the the talk radio side, and I got to know Glenn and and uh, continued working with him to this day.
1: Yeah, and, and but, if people haven't figured out from listening to you here, I mean, you're you're the voice of promos for Glenn uh, when when he sells a book or merchandise or something. Yeah, I and mean, you are ubiquitous on the blaze yeah it's kind of a i think it was kind of born out of necessity you know we
0: we because <laughs> when i started with glenn i mean he was just he was just a guy in a, in a town you know and then it became this national national and then you know international stage and uh and we were right. kind of figuring things out as we were going it was like oh wait do we have a voice guy You know, uh, no. So Eric would do some stuff. (laughs) And then when Eric was unavailable, I would do some stuff. And, and, uh, so I I probably have this job to thank for getting into voiceover because it was never something I was interested in.
1: Wow. That's interesting because when I think of you, I mean, no offense, but I think of you as Mr. Voiceover because you do such a great job. You're so versatile at it. And it's just funny how life works where you just said, yeah, that was I just kind of stumbled into it, really.
0: Yeah, it's, you know, it's one of those things I think it, it, I was, it benefited me sitting on the other side of the glass, so to speak. You know, being a producer first and foremost, I kind of knew what a producer was expecting out of their voice person. And so mm-hmm. so I think that helped me quite a bit going from one side to the other yeah. or wearing both hats, at least.
1: And it's not just voiceover stuff, though. You have a lot of connections to the music business. Tell us some stuff about that. Well,
0: sound design is kind of my primary, so I do a lot of editing and sound design work and and creating promos and stuff like that. And um, and then I've made friends with people who do music work and stuff uh, as their primary, just because they kind of overlap from time to time. You got to spice up music with production and stuff like that. And I always wanted to do mixing. That's what I. That's why I went to Full Sail. I wanted to make records. I thought I was done with radio at that point, and you know I was going to move on. And I was going to work with Michael Jackson one day.
1: <laughs> you know, that was when I was yeah. eight years old. That yeah. was like my thing. But Yeah, that's one of the things in the in the email that you said, that when you first discovered the sound equipment uh, as a child, one of the things you want to do, you wanted to figure out how Michael Jackson could sing with himself. Yeah. That is
0: so fun. I had no concept of multi-track uh, recording at the time. You know, it was just, as so far as I knew, uh, when you hit record on a cassette and then you rewound it and hit record again, you overwrote what you just did. So I, I couldn't figure uh-huh. out, how is he recording with himself? You know, I just, I had no idea.
1: <laughs> that's cool. Yeah, so, you know, that's
0: that, that the, the so kind cool. of things that are magic to you at one moment and then a necessity in your career, you know, years later.
1: Right, right. Uh, uh, and you, you had hoped to, and I guess it never did work out, right, that maybe one day you could actually work with Michael Jackson. That would have been fun.
0: Yeah, I mean, I just kind of, I, I liked his style and, you know, I thought, and most of the people that I always, that I wanted to work with were people that I wanted to learn from, you know, so, yeah, so I would find I mean, these people who were really good at doing what they were doing. And I was like, man, I want to know how they do that.
1: Right. Now you're friends with a, a composer, a musician, uh, BT.
0: Yeah. Brian Transo. We've been friends for, uh, quite a while.
1: Yeah. So I looked up his resume. My gosh, he's worked with everybody. I mean,
0: he's listed as Peter Frampton and Madonna.
1: Right. Peter Gabriel, Sting, um, and Death Cab for Cutie. I have to mention them because, I mean, that's a favorite of mine right there. Yeah. That's really cool. So how did you guys meet and what have you done with him?
0: So he had played a show. I was working at a radio station in Tampa at FLZ in Tampa. And um, he had come to play one of our shows. I think it was like a Halloween show. And he had this song out. At the time, I think it was uh, Somnambulist, uh, which which just means sleepwalker, and it was just a really catchy song, became a kind of a top 40 song that was played on the radio, so he came to play one of our shows, and I specifically remember I had really liked his music uh, you know, beforehand, and so our promotions girl came and she grabbed my hand and she pulled me across the room, and I just remember she stood me in front of BT and she said, "'BT, meet your biggest fan?' Nick me, BT. <laughs> and I was so nervous. <laughs> nice. I think the only thing I could say was hi, you know, and and, uh, and we just kind of uh, we exchanged correspondence uh, from time to time after that. And um, he had heard an intro that I produced for our station for a show that he had done and he sent me a message and asked if I would do one that he could use in his tour. And, you know that wasn't specific to the station. And I said sure. And so i m- I made that. Uh, and then he did a show on Sirius, and so I made the intro on Sirius Satellite for him for that show. And then I think he did another tour and I did, did, maybe did another intro for that. And so we just kind of ha- had done things, you know, like that over the course of a few years and then became better friends. And at some point he did this album and they were looking for backers and things like that. And uh, so I helped, helped back the album and then went out to Skywalker Sound in California to help record and mix the, um, the album. And so that was a super exciting experience for me because I had, uh, first of all, I was enamored with Skywalker. And secondly, you know, to go work on a project with BT, who is just an amazing musician and technologist and a producer. It was just a dream. I mean, It was a childhood dream. There was no, I mean, that is, yeah,
1: yeah, that's really cool. And I, and when I was looking up this BT, you know, I I saw that he has uh, patents for stutter editing. Is there a way that you can describe stutter yeah. editing? What is that exactly? Cuz I, I guarantee you I know it. I've probably done it. I don't know. I just I want to make sure that I know what, what I'm talking about. So here. the
0: kind of the poor man's version of it is to take a little piece of sound and repeat it over and over again so it goes you yeah. know or that that that, that, uh-huh. that, that 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 kind of thing. That's that's a stutter. Um, and so what BT pioneered was was a way to for software to do that but to do it on a musical value. So basically you were never out of time it wasn't just randomly duplicating something it was duplicating it in time with the music and uh, and adjusting that the amount of time it was duplicating over a period of time so it was pretty crazy like he could take a piece of sound, break it down into 1024 pieces basically and stutter those pieces and then slowly it goes down to, you know, an eighth note that you're familiar with in music. And so it kind of creates this zippering sound of, that, <tradet noise> you know, almost like a basketball <laughs> bouncing to a stop.
1: That is fun. You guys, you BT folks up there in that echelon, you put a small time editor to <laughs> shame. That's for sure. I, I tell you guys, I mean, and you're fast too. My goodness. You, you turn around some quality stuff and, and really quickly. I know you've also worked with Anthony Rapp. You've been friends with him for a long time, right? Yeah, Anthony
0: was just somebody that I met. He, A friend of mine in theater back in high school knew Anthony. And so we had uh, met on a trip to New York or something, a whole group of us, and we all kind of became friends. And we got a chance to see the original cast of Rent when it was on on Broadway, uh, which was an incredible experience. And I, I guess Anthony and I just kind of had a lot in common, and he had wildly different views on politics and everything than me. And of course, I was a lot younger then, so I had different views than I even have now. But I just found it fascinating to kind of have this friend of mine who had such different views than I had grown up with, who was doing something, you know, in a city that I was totally unfamiliar with and and in a show that had impacted me as it did so many people across the country. I guess I was just kind of enamored and and, uh, and impressionable at the time. He was, a, he was a good mentor, you know, as far as saying, yeah, uh-huh. you know, don't freak out about this, and here's what you got to focus on, and <laughs> things like that. Because, you know, when you're 16, everything's a huge issue in life, and, you know, what am I going to do for, with my future, and what am I going to do with my career? And, you know, I can't believe someone yeah. called me a name, and now my life is over. And... <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, yeah, because, I mean, you mentioned that you know, he was... Um... With rent and now Star Trek Discovery, is that the show that's on right now? Yeah,
0: that's the current uh, that- series. That was super exciting. I was very uh, proud of him when he got that role because yeah. he's he's typically been you know in theater for most of his career, but he was in. That movie, um, Adventures in Babysitting, back in the day, he was the redheaded kid oh, wha- that comes and blows his mouth up oh, on the window, you know? Oh, <laughs> he's obsessed with the... That's yeah. cool! So that was him, and uh, he was in Six Degrees of Separation well, with Kevin Bacon, I think it was. So he's been uh-huh. in, in shows, you know, and then the movie Rent he was in as well, but, but he's been in stuff throughout his career in, in television, but he's primarily a stage actor, so I thought it was cool that he got, you know, uh, a recurring TV series.
1: So let's talk about your connection to the Backstreet Boys. Tell us about that.
0: <laughs> that was back in my high school days. Uh, so so uh, Brian from the Backstreet Boys went to school in Lexington, Kentucky, which is where I went to high school. And the chorus teacher that taught him, I guess Brian was in chorus, was also the chorus teacher that taught at my high school. And so the opportunity came that Brian had written this song called The Perfect Fan. And it was a song written about his mother. And he wanted his kind of alma mater basically to be the chorus on the song. And so they brought this huge recording truck into town and we went over to a performing arts center and they they set us up on the stage and this this massive recording truck came and recorded the choir for the song. Of course, I spent about 90% of the time in the truck checking out the equipment, but Uh. (laughs) but it it was a really cool experience. And then, of course, you know, opening up a CD back then when you had liner notes and seeing your name written inside when you're you know 17 huh. years old or something was was that was really cool.
1: That is cool. So if someone has a copy of the Backstreet Boys Millennium album, yeah. they will see in the liner notes Nick Dave. Right. That is really fun. How cool. All right. So obviously you can sing, right? Well, I mean that's debatable. I could carry a tune maybe. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. I was just going to ask, have you done any other things or was it just, you know, that that connection there is your Is where your claim to fame is, I guess, in the realm of singing. Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah, that's it. Yeah, I would never attempt anything else.
1: (laughs) So when you fill out the answer to the question, tell me about some of your hobbies, and you say you dabble in music, do you also, in addition to the sound element and the editing and stuff, are you saying that you are a musician or help me understand, um, you have some talent there playing instruments or is it just strictly just the editing and overlay stuff?
0: No, it's music creation. That's always been something I've been interested in before, but i'm I'm not necessarily a uh, a musician in the sense that I'll sit down and play a guitar or or something like that okay so i I was in band in you know middle school and high school, so I have a foundation, I guess at least in in music. Mm-hmm. but I kind of I'm like a computer musician <laughs> where I'll go in and I you know I kind of write everything on on the midi keyboard and then i'll assign instruments to those notes nice. which is you know just okay. something you couldn't do 30 years ago or, or whatever so it's maybe that's why i'm getting into it so late
1: um let's see here your dog's name is chance yeah you gotta explain to me a boxer slash staffordshire terrier mix uh-huh. so a staffordshire terrier is, is this, a
0: though? he's a it's basically what people think of when they think pit bull. there's so many different types of breeds, I guess, that make a pit bull. I think pit bull is not necessarily a breed. I don't know. I, I've never oh, really? owned a pit bull before. I've always grown up with, you know, labs and golden retrievers and things like that. But I'm a big fan of rescuing animals. So when I went out to, mm-hmm. to L.A., uh, I had two dogs when I moved out there. And unfortunately, they both passed away while I was there. So oh. I started looking for a new dog. And and this, um, I had saved a, a pit that was going to be put down from a shelter this rescue group called me and said could you please go look at this dog they're going to put him down tomorrow and so I I went and got him and I took him home but he was like 80 pounds he was you know he was big oh. and uh and it's the sweetest sweetest dog ever but he looked scary so like when I was walking him around the neighborhood people would cross the street you know and change sides of the road and <laughs> things like that so I thought well and I had this thing in that where I was living you know in LA they had this restriction on pit bulls being there so I, I said I can't Unfortunately, can't keep this dog. And so we found him a home actually with a, a a naval officer, a husband and wife. They're both in the Navy. And so I was like, great, they can run him, you know, wear out his energy. And the, the same rescue company said, hey, I've got this uh, other dog you might want to check out. And it was Chance. And I went to see him and I didn't realize he was a, a pit bull necessarily because he, he kind of looks I guess he maybe does look like a pit, but he didn't look like the scary kind of pit. He's all white.
1: I was gonna say, are people still crossing the road when you go down? No, uh, most people want to come and pet
0: him. Yeah, and actually, if you've seen if you've seen Stephen Crowder's pits, the white dogs, uh, he looks like he looks like Crowder's dogs.
1: Yeah, is he also eighty pounds? Then
0: Uh, he's close. He's like he. I think he was about (laughs) seventy. So last time I went, yeah.
1: Well, what I love is the way you described him in the email. Is that he's a good studio dog and he just hangs out on the couch behind you while you edit and do your work. He's great. Yeah, and I just wondered, has he ever barked or ruined any anything, anything you were recording where he at the at the most inopportune time decided to uh, make his presence known? <laughs> not,
0: not usually. He's pretty quiet. He doesn't bark a lot at much, okay. but but every now and then he's uh, he'll do this vocal yawn. So he'll go. <laughs> You know, just from the back if (laughs) if I'm not paying attention to him. So he's occasionally done that when I'm recording something, but it's never been during a live session or anything, which is good.
1: Okay, okay, because that is a great impression. My dog does the same (laughs) thing with that. Look, everybody, I'm yawning, and you're going to know about it three rooms away. Yeah,
0: exactly. (laughs) Yeah, sometimes I have to put him out of the room. He's got this thing where if I start talking, like if I'm talking to you, he's not in here right now, but if he was... I think they don't. Dogs don't have the concept of you're talking to someone who's on the other end of a piece of electronics. They just think you're talking to them. So he starts rolling around and and you know doing that that thing and like getting all excited, <laughs> thinking I'm talking to him. So sometimes I have to put him out for sessions.
1: I never thought of that. Yes, you're right. They don't understand. <laughs> That's funny. Of course. Now, if you were to put me on speak or someone he was familiar with on speakerphone, then that really blows their mind. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah okay uh so how does that work where i mean you you work in your home in your home studio correct you don't have to travel anywhere it's all right there with you yes
0: yeah i used to work in the studio at when i was in radio and then when mm-hmm. uh when i i left radio and went full-time with glenn chris balf was running the company at the time and he said you know we don't really have a studio where we are at the moment so if, if you know <laughs> if you're uh okay, staying at your home studio, great, and then we'll figure something out. And I just kind of, I started, you know, once you, when you do a home studio, there's so much to do, like you have to buy so much equipment and plugins and monitors and chairs. I mean, just everything that you, you speakers, that you have to accumulate over time in a studio. And so after a couple of years, I had kind of built this setup and shortcut system. And, you know, I knew where everything was and it was, it was the gear I picked and, you know, I didn't have to submit a CapEx report to get a $50 plug-in, you know, <laughs> anymore. And so that was definitely a, an advantage. And I just kind of stayed that way. And And at this point now, I've, I've probably built, you know, I built two or three studios myself. And then this last studio, I had, I had a professional studio designer come in and build like a proper studio. And I've never uh-huh. been happier.
1: I was going to say, how difficult was it to soundproof? Your home studio, because I can't imagine like trying to soundproof a room in my house. But maybe yeah. it's not that tough. I don't
0: well, know. so the crazy thing is, I mean, a lot of people think, oh, you put up some foam on the wall and it's fine. But there's so much science that goes into mm-hmm. making a room an acoustic space. Like there's a lot of math involved. Oh well, then I then I'm definitely out. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean it's I mean I was out because I had tried to do it myself a few times and I would have these problems. there would be like, oh, there's this weird ringing halfway in the middle of the room, or I've got this odd you know, node in my room that's that's causing my microphone to sound weird. And so eventually I called a couple of different companies. One company came out, they said they could do it, and they totally screwed up my room. I mean, they put holes in the ceiling, there was moisture coming in and water dripping down, and it was just really oh, bad. No. And so... They kind of repaired what they did, but it wasn't good. And I said, you know what? I'm just, I'm not going to try this myself anymore. I've, I've wasted so much money and time and effort. And, <laughs> and you know, and so when mm-hmm. I called this designer and he came down and I said, is there anything you can do with the existing room as it is? And he said, no. So we, we basically <laughs> yeah. redid the entire space. And But I'll tell you what, the difference is night and day. So, in fact, BT ended up hiring the same <laughs> studio builder that I, I had my room built. and And two years later, he built his room. Uh, with the same studio designer, of course, on a much grander scale. Uh, but it's it's fantastic, and he's and we still talk about what a wizard this designer is. <laughs> he's just oh, very he's so cool. good. It's all these. There's mathematically drilled holes in the walls that specifically absorb certain frequencies and reflect other ones to make the space completely quiet. I mean, it's just that great. is fascinating. Yeah.
1: Wow. See, I there's no way I could pull something off like that. So, if you ever have any downtime, um, I take it you do like to read because. You know, you you listed um, a Michael Crichton book. Um, yeah. That I feel like I should know what it's about because it seems familiar, and I I guarantee you most people have heard it, read it. I'm just I'm not a big reader, I guess, uh, in that genre. Yeah,
0: I'm not a huge reader myself. I, I tend to my mind wanders too much. So, but but as audio focused as I am, you know, audiobooks have now. Just, I mean, almost everything's got an audiobook now. You don't have to drive to Cracker Barrel and, you know, buy your copy, you know, Uh, or go to the library. I remember
1: that. Yes. Yes. Because when you stand there to pay, they still have it to this day, those big carousels with CDs you can rent. And yes, that is awesome. Yeah, because we do that on
0: family trips. But yeah, so now you can just, you know, Uh you have Audible and and whatever. So uh, I started listening to uh, some of these stories and... I discovered this Michael Crichton book called *Prey*. Yeah, I mean, tell me about this book *Prey*. It may have been one of his earlier novels, uh, but uh, I'm not sure when. Yeah, I just
1: it. I looked it up. 2002. Okay,
0: yeah. So it's so, so it's it yeah. was shortly after *Jurassic Park*, I guess. And it's about uh, these um, AI nanobots, basically, that are developed in a lab to for a specific function, and they are uh, they escape from the lab and they get out Uh-oh. into the real world and it turns out that their directive is not hospitable to human life. <laughs> let's put it that way. So it's a very uh, it's okay. a very interesting story of kind of this scientist trying to figure out what happened.
1: See, this feels like the kind of fiction book. Well, let's hope it's fiction, right? This kind of the kind of fiction book that I might be into. So Pray by Michael Craig. Oh, yeah.
0: And the narrator of it, if you get the audiobook, is fantastic. So it's, it's, it's very good. Okay.
1: P-R-E-Y, Prey. Okay. The last book you read was Own the Day by Aubrey Marcus. Uh, what's that about?
0: It's one of those, you know, self-help books of, you know, stop making excuses okay. and get up and live your life. You know, <laughs> right. it's like uh, he talks so, about so- the power of morning routines and, you know, getting up and kind of having a, a ritual of things to do
1: and is that difficult to have a morning ritual when you' living and your workspace are under the same roof
0: i think so i think working from home yeah. is something a lot of people you know longed for before the pandemic and then now that they've had to do mm-hmm. it for a while they probably realize it's not as glamorous as it seems i'm not saying it's a, it's bad at all but you you tend to miss the interactions that you have with you know with people so and i think a lot of people oh, they yeah, tend it's... to think of their workplace and they think of all the negatives you know all sally and sales you know and phil and you know <laughs> fill in acquisitions you know stuff like that it's like what but you forget about all the positive interactions you have during the day
1: <laughs> the thing that's frustrating for me is that you find out which people you can't count on with emails oh yeah it's like you can go stand at their desk and hover over them to get an answer and that's the way you have to do it well, you haven't seen these people for months and months and months. It's like, could you just please respond to the email in a timely manner? Yes. Yeah. So, that that's one element that that I have missed with the people working at home. But yeah, you're right. It seemed like something that everybody would want to do. And now that we've done it, I'm sure there are some good success stories. But talk about distractions at home. Yeah. You know, it's like oh yeah. There's so many things that I need to be doing right now at the house. Oh, look, I'm at the house, you know, but uh, that would definitely take discipline that I don't know that I have. So your favorite app, I asked this question. I just started asking this question. What's your favorite app? And your response, I never thought of, but it might be mine as well. It's Spotify. I mean, what can't you get on Spotify? I love it.
0: Yeah, I mean, Spotify is one of those things that I discovered, I think because of a project that I did where... The other people were choosing music and they were like, hey, let's just get like a, you know, share a playlist. And I had never really mm-hmm. used Spotify before. I think I was using like, gosh, like Napster. Didn't Napster have like a streaming service <laughs> or something? And
1: Oh, wow. That's right. I forgot yeah, about that. Yeah, when they went yeah. legitimate.
0: And I think I had just had that for, for so long after I, you know, had left radio. And so anyway, I switched over to that and I was just, I, I ever since then I've loved, I like the interface. I like the, uh, the fact that you can get podcasts there, you can get music there, and mm-hmm. it's just um, I think they do a good job.
1: I tried so many music apps, Nick, and I did all the trial periods. I have tried them all, and Spotify is laid out better than any of them. Mm-hmm. It is so convenient the way they set that up. Now, a long time ago on the Glenn Beck program, there was a big debate among his audience what was better? Are you on team cake or are you on team pie? And that was a debate that raged uh, with his audience for quite a while. <laughs> and that is listed here as your favorite comfort food, cake. Yeah. Now, I'm going to have to just disagree with you <laughs> and let you know that, that pie, pie is definitely better than cake. But to each his own. Uh, So cake and tacos are your favorite comfort food. Okay, that's that's good to know. (laughs) I'll remember that. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I think it's the
0: icing for me that does it. It's that sugary... Okay, "Mm."
1: yeah. But I'm not against the pie. I'm not against a good pie. I'll go... (laughs) And I respect the cake answer, too. So we found common ground. That's good. Let's see here. Earliest memory. Um, Okay. Thankfully, you survived it. But this sounds like... I've told a story before where i have messed around the back of my grandparents television set and ended up flying across the room oh jeez! touch a capacitor or something yeah it was a it was a suction cup on a tv and the tv was unplugged so i just thought cool (laughs) there's a suction cup and the next thing i know i'm literally across the room and looking around and nobody Nobody saw me get there, (laughs) but uh, you had a similar experience, which actually my son, when he was two, did this as well, and it was stick something metal into an AC outlet, yeah? Yeah,
0: Yeah. I don't know why, but when I was a kid, I used to, I used to practice, I I would pretend I was driving, whether I was driving a truck or whatever it was, and I would sit, and I had this key that I had found, and the most logical place to place it. Was the slot in the outlet, no. and but the key never the uh. key didn't fit. It was too big, so it, I never had a problem. So I would just you know kind of put it there, and I guess it would just kind of sit there, but it didn't go all the way in. So I lucked out most of the time, uh-huh. but I couldn't find that key one day, and I remember sticking a bread uh. twist tie in there, and. Uh, because that's all I could find, and it popped and it melted that twist tie right into my finger. So, oh no, I remember my mom, I just remember my mom saying all she saw was a blue flash come from the room, and she was in the other room and she came (laughs) running in there. Oh,
1: yeah, well, I'm glad
0: you made it, (laughs) yeah. I mean, and then and I, so I, I guess I'm one of those people that contributed to these super annoying outlets now. If anybody has a new house and they've built these. Outlets have to wiggle (laughs) the plug around before it goes in. I'm one of those kids that contributed to that decision, apparently. You. (laughs) I know. I hate myself (laughs) for it, too, every time I plug in the vacuum.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. Okay. So you have done a lot of traveling with Glenn Beck, who we mentioned earlier. What are some of the places that you have been in your life? Tell us about some of these experiences.
0: Well, we did a tour. I think maybe the first tour I went on was 2008. We did the Christmas sweater tour. Uh, That was coast to coast because we started, I think, in Pennsylvania may have been our first stop. And our last stop, I think, was Salt Lake City. So it was, it was, uh, and it was about a month of touring. And so that, that was exciting. So you were,
1: you were at all of these live shows then? Yeah.
0: So what happened, we needed a way, uh, if you saw the show, there was, um, uh, mm-hmm. multimedia playing in the background on the screens behind him. And, uh, and it was a very yeah. interactive show. So as he went through it, there was sound playing and stuff that kind of went along with these scenes. It was basically like a... It was like an audio story on stage, which was interesting Um, and because it was more sound and visuals than it was props or other actors. And so we needed a Mm -hmm. way for if Glenn changed his timing, could we adjust this soundtrack, you know, to hit the script, you know, if heaven forbid something happened or a line was skipped or whatever. Or, you know, he didn't hit it. He, there was no way we were going to say, okay, you have to deliver these paragraphs in exactly 10 minutes and 23 seconds because the visual changes. So all of that had ah. to be built modularly. So I built these kind of modular sound elements that could be cut off early or extended longer or overlapped to, to flex in time with Glenn. And so I had to be there to run that. And uh, so that was kind of the first tour and then probably the next event was the Man in the Moon event yeah. in Salt Lake City. And although that wasn't a tour, uh, it was quite a bit of work leading up to it. I, I want to say I I was working with uh, Ben and the American Dream Labs team for probably like, it may have been a year before we actually did the show that we were kind of getting things wow. planned and I was flying to Salt Lake City a couple of times to do these kind of tech shoots and uh, and then behind the scenes shoots and things like that. So it was uh that was a big show. And that was also the first time we had done surround sound for an outdoor venue of, of about twenty thousand people. So that was something Yeah, that, these
1: aren't things you just throw together on the fly, man. That's a lot involved,
0: yeah. You know? Yeah, I mean it was it was kind of, you know, hey, I've never done this before. I gotta figure out how to do it. And um so And I think, you know, we made it where There, that show actually was such a it was such a success in the end. The actual show went off, you know, really well without a hitch. But leading up to that was probably one of the most disastrous. I mean, it just everything that could go wrong did go wrong for that show. And then it, and then brilliantly came off flawless, you know, to the audience, aside from the <laughs> fact that it poured it rained yes. that. I think it rained that year for the first time in like seventy years on that weekend. The Farmers Almanac they chose that weekend specifically because it had never rained during that time of year <laughs> at that location, <laughs> and and that doesn't count. Or that doesn't matter apparently. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Now, did you have to go to Iraq for something? Yeah, that
0: was yeah. So after that, I think the next trip was off to Iraq. It was kind of a joint thing. It was a documentary. Uh, for Mercury One's operation to get some of the Christian refugees out of the country that were being oppressed uh-huh. at the time. Because at the time, um, ISIS was, I mean, they were just wiping out villages. It went, uh, I think they had 3 million Christians in Iraq uh, at the beginning of the year. And at the end of the year, there was something like 300,000 left.
1: Yeah, it was. Stunning. Yeah. So yes. Glenn
0: said we got to do something about this, and uh, Mercury One raised quite a bit of money to for transportation and uh, you know dealing with the visas to get into another country. So we went to Iraq uh, to do the documentary, and of course I had never. I got this call from Glenn. And he goes, I'm going to ask you a question you've probably never been asked before. And I'm thinking, oh, he's being sarcastic. He's going to ask me to fix a piece of audio. And he says, <laughs> how do you feel about coming to Iraq with me? And I was like, mm. uh, okay. Like, I, you know, I'd never been, but I thought <laughs> I was kind of scared. And then at the same time, like, hey, I'll, I'll probably never have an opportunity like this again. So, so I did. And, you know, and we were, um, We had the fortune to be threatened by ISIS while we were there, which was fantastic.
1: I was going to ask you, yeah, what what was that like?
0: We were at a refugee camp and we were doing interviews and I I was standing there with one of the camera guys and one of our security detail came up and he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, time to go. And I said, great, we're almost done with this interview. And he said, now. I said, okay. (laughs) And because we had been told if they say, let's go, just go. And so, uh, we Mm. threw all of our stuff in the, in the trucks and took off real quick and nobody had told us what was going on. so at some point the security guy, after he was done kind of coordinating the exit had said, he turned around and said, we're going to the hotel. When we pull up, you have 60 seconds to get to your room, get your possessions and get back to this vehicle. And we're going to the airport and we're like, okay. And there's no time to explain. So we ran and got our stuff and got back out and floored it to the airport. There was a plane waiting on the tarmac We got on and we took off almost straight up. I just I remember stuff rolling down the aisle of the plane to the back of the plane and going, what is going on? And so they were telling us at the time, Russia is coming in to bomb ISIS and they're closing the Iraqi airspace. So if you don't get out of the Iraqi airspace in the next 60 minutes. You're going to be turned around by Russian MiGs at the border and have to stay and be forced to stay in Iraq. And we didn't want to get stuck there. God. So we booked it. I remember turning around and looking at the airspeed monitor in the back, and we were, we were going almost 700 miles an hour to get out of that airspace. Uh-huh. And so I remember thinking, this is like the craziest thing I've ever experienced. It was exhilarating and terrifying. Yeah. And, so, <laughs> and so we found out later that the place that we were at, the camp, that ISIS had found out that we were there helping these Christian refugees, and they had threatened to put a car bomb at our location. That there was chatter, mm. that there was a car bomb. Oh, wow! So we're on the plane on after we exit Iraq airspace. You know, Glenn <laughs> turns around and he says, "Wow, well, because we had planned, we were supposed to stay, you know, in Iraq and finish these interviews and stuff, and we just we couldn't. So we had about, I think it was like twenty four hours or so before we had our next, you know, place that we needed to be. And Glenn said, "Well, you guys want to go to Sweden?" <laughs> and so that's where we went, and we we literally spent the day. Just kind of hanging out in Sweden waiting, you know, we went shopping and and whatever and and just kind of walked around.
1: That's what I was going to ask you. Where did you, where did you hightail it to?
0: Yeah, we actually, we went and looked at a bunch of old uh, churches and, and stuff. Glenn was really interested in the architecture and stuff of that.
1: Okay. Now, one of the things you want to do in your lifetime is you want to work on a feature film someday. And that's uh, obviously the sound elements uh, related to that, correct?
0: Yeah. You know, film was one of those things growing up and still to this day is kind of where where the most bombastic sound ends up. You know, the kind of the really good quality kind of craftsmanship of sound. And film was one of those places where, I mean, I would, I just, I loved the subtlety that was put into movies. And so, and I think kind of aside from music, film was the next logical step of, you know, music had a lot of detail and, and quality and craftsmanship in it. And then, you know, film was kind of the next step. And meanwhile, you know, I've been working in broadcast, which kind of, which, which was always kind of the redheaded stepchild of the media industry <laughs> because, and, and, and it's just the nature of the beast because broadcast runs on a news cycle and a network clock and you don't have, you don't have three months to put something together. So film was kind of one of those things where I was like, man, I could actually spend a lot of time on something and really, and really, uh. You know make something impactful here and and in a lot of ways that's what i've done with glenn for so many years and we've done things like stories uh and uh, we mm-hmm. did the serials series and uh and things like that yes where,
1: yes you and i work closely on them yeah. yeah
0: so the the ability to kind of tell stories through sound is something i've always been fascinated with and that's something that glenn has always really appreciated it was kind of a um an, an audio story environment where you could close your eyes and, and imagine what was happening through sound.
1: Okay, so you mentioned all the things that you've done with Glenn, and I'm glad you brought that up because I want to ask you, because you've done the most serious type stuff for Glenn and the most humorous type stuff for Glenn. So if you had the opportunity, if someone said you could work on one film what would it be? Would it be a comedy? Would it be something more dramatic something serious, more historical? what what genre of film would you like to work on? That's a
0: good question. I think they all kind of have their redeeming qualities depending on what you want to go for. but for me, mm-hmm. probably the most interesting um, has always been sci-fi just because there's mm. there's elements there that maybe don't exist in reality. And then there's also elements that are rooted in reality. And then you kind of have the ability yeah. to play on people's fear of situations and yeah, stuff like and that.
1: You could probably be more creative, I would imagine. Yeah. In that realm.
0: Yeah. And animation is one of those mm-hmm. places too where you get nothing for free. When you do an animated film, you know, there's nothing was recorded on set. There's no environment. There's no oh, birds. There's no wow. anything. So that's one of those places where you really can can craft something I mean, sound by sound.
1: Yeah. And that's one thing that I really appreciated in working on those serials with you. Like, my job was just to simply, gosh, if I can remember it correctly. Yeah, it's been a while. It was just to, let's see, I would have, I guess I would have Glenn read scripts or something, and then I would, I would send them to mm-hmm. you. Um, I, I don't know, but one of the things that, uh, literally, I, I have forgotten my role in that, but um i do remember when the finished product would come back and i would listen to them i would marvel at where you would subtly put sounds like let's just say and i don't know why this comes to mind i don't even think we did a serial on abraham lincoln but i'm just imagining a story where it's like abraham lincoln you know grew up chopping logs and you know that subtlety Of putting the sound of logs being chopped in the background or or stuff like that that you would pepper in and i know you don't even have to tell me i know those were all consuming you spent so much time crafting those and it really showed yeah those
0: things take quite a while but i think i think it's worth it to the audience in the end i think that's some it's like a void that i've always wanted to fill and maybe we'll go down that rabbit hole someday, but there's a void between audiobooks and films. There's you, When you, you go from a book to an audiobook and you get the same words but but read out loud, but you go from an uh, audiobook to a film, in a film you've got all this um, environment, environmental sounds, backgrounds that are happening behind the characters, Yeah. you know, the sound of, of breathing and clothing moving and stuff like that that make everything so much more realistic. And so I like being able to build stories that are not just someone speaking but also you have the environment in there.
1: Do you remember off the top of your head how long were those serials? Because I know they were in four parts, right? Is it four part serials or five Yeah, I think
0: or? I think so and I want to say they were maybe like 7 or 7 to 12 minutes each, maybe or 4 to 7 minutes each. So yeah,
1: No, I think I think you're right cuz I was thinking about 10 minutes okay, each. Yeah. So I think you're right. Yeah. Okay, so 10 minute serial tells a story. Glenn's narrating. Background, you have to lay down all the audio, just like you said, from birds chirping to chopping wood to screams to doors closing in the background, all that stuff, footsteps. How long does a 10 minute serial with all of those background elements, do you have any way to quantify how much, how, how, how many man hours you put on that?
0: That was always tough to quantify because every story was different. So some stories are more sparse and some were more involved. But for a more involved one, I mean, that was probably a full, you know, 10 hour day or so to do to do a 10 minute thing like Telltale wow, Heart. That's fast. You know, those stories that we did, like The Raven and Telltale Heart and um, Right uh, Conqueror Worm and things like that. The like Telltale Heart was a 14 minute piece. And that took me 28 hours
1: to put together. And see, I'm glad you mentioned that because all of these creative things that you hear Glenn do over the years, such as the Edgar Allan Poe stuff, the serials, and anything creative that involves a lot of audio, this is the man. Nick Daly is the guy who is putting all of that together for Glenn. And your talent really shows with those. Do you enjoy... And maybe maybe it's not a fair question. It's probably like trying to pick your favorite child. But do you enjoy making a funny 30-second promo more or less than a 10-minute involved serial or dramatic presentation or, or the live stuff that you do for Glenn? Is there anything in particular that you do for Glenn, let's say, that you enjoy more than others?
0: I'm glad you said live stuff because I forgot. Uh, about War of the Worlds that we did in in 2002 (laughs) or so.
1: Oh, wow, yes. I'm so glad you're mentioning these by name because now people that are listening to this podcast are now able to associate you specifically with those things that they are so familiar with over the years.
0: Yeah, I I did the sound for War of the Worlds along with um, Eric Chase at the time. Uh, He and I worked for about three months ahead of that project on just the sound that was going to be played back uh, from tape, and we went to Sirius Satellite and did that show, and that to me, and like just in history, is one of the the most exhilarating experiences I've ever had the opportunity to be involved in. I I just mm. really really love that, and I've said to Glenn over the years, you know, uh, uh, can we do another War of the Worlds? Can we do another? you know show a story like that a live a live story with actors and you know live sound effects and because you know we had probably 50 percent of the sound effects were performed live during that from body falls to footsteps to whatever we had people standing there wow. like we did it like a traditional radio show
1: just like it originally aired. Yeah. wow yeah. You know, the only
0: difference was the, the the playback that we had on tape of some of the sound effects that you know we just couldn't do in the in the, the studio like the sound of the the Mm -hmm. spacecraft and you know the air raid sirens and things like that so fair to say that
1: your live stuff is what you enjoy the most yeah i would say the
0: live stuff as far as just being involved in something is i'd love to do that and then otherwise like my studio favorite you know um is to create the dramatic stuff there's just something about being able to steer somebody's emotions with sound that that is just uh i
1: don't know it's it's alluring for me Mm mm-hmm and one last question here. I want to go back to the films for a moment. You talk about hopefully someday you'll be involved with a, a film, some, some sort of movie or something like that. Are there any movies or documentaries or anything that comes to mind when you think of this is a great uh, movie for sound? I've got, I've got my answer in my head and I think it's probably a lot of people's, but I just wanted to see: is there anything that pops into your head that you go, "That's what I want to create," something like that?
0: Uh oof, that's a tough one. Well, I mean, the of course, the cliche one is Star Wars because that was the original, you know, sound. Uh, okay, the, the genius mind from Ben Burt Yeah. Um, probably I, you know, pro- the, one of the films that I hold up as just having the best sound is Wally. That uh, oh pixar movie was it pixar i should go back and
1: pay attention then yeah
0: yeah so wally was just uh it's one of those animated films where you get nothing for free and everything was created specifically for that world and it's just if you listen to it from just a sound perspective like you just put on your headphones and close your eyes everything is super Mm -hmm. smooth in that movie all the sounds there's not a sharp edgy sound in there it's all very round and smooth and pleasant and uh i like that i don't know there's just there's something about the way ben huh. burt crafts sound and you know to his testament when you were talking about things like uh movies that people may not hold up as as the, a great sound movie uh ben burt did the movie lincoln with daniel day lewis and uh-huh. that's not an action movie at all in fact it's probably one of the like least actiony movies i've ever seen i had struggle to stay awake <laughs> during it because for a while i'm not a huge history person <laughs> so it's a lot to get me to watch something okay. history and then and then to, but but i wanted to watch it because it was you know it was heralded and so uh but one of the things i found out about him ben burt's sound design for that movie is that he took into consideration not only what the sound was that was going to be in the scene but what was happening one block away two blocks away and three blocks away from the white house during that time and would layer that sound in so, if that at that time of the year, during that time that was supposed to be happening in the movie, a train station was active three blocks away, you would hear a train in the background far away.
1: Wow. And to me, that's that is attention yeah,
0: to detail. That's attention to detail and that subtlety that is often overlooked in cinema. But you, you, the audience definitely uh, connects with the realism when it is there.
1: I need to go back and listen, listen to these movies. That's what I need to do. My answer when I think of, because I appreciate good sound in the theater and, and hearing something over here and hearing something back here off to my right and all that stuff. I, I really do. But the one movie I I sat there in awe as much at the sound as the visuals was Dunkirk. You know what? I never saw that. So that's that's one that I would highly recommend because the soundtrack never stops. It's just constant something is hmm. always moving the story along audibly so anyway, yeah. uh, if you ever get a chance to check out dunkirk let me you know shoot me a note and let me know your thoughts as far as the audio goes for that is there any place right now besides on the blaze for example and with glenn Beck where people can well end at the front and back end of this podcast where can people hear your stuff in action right now if they wanted to just go, oh, I know the guy who made that? Oh, gosh. It's probably. <laughs> <I don't laughs> yeah, it's probably places you have no idea. You record something for someone and you have no idea when or where they're going to use it.
0: Yeah. Right? I mean, sometimes it's just a corporate video that, you know, is going to run for some sales team internally and it'll never get seen. And sometimes it's, <laughs> you know, it's on TV and uh, and it maybe only run for a week. You know, even I don't get to see it, but. Uh, Yeah, it's just kind of all over. There's a lot of podcasts that uh, like podcast intros and stuff. I have a lot of friends who have started podcasts and then they've called and said, hey, can you?
1: uh..." (laughs) Oh, like me. No, this is this is specifically me. I mean, you I want it clear to everybody that you just cut those lines for for this podcast and some other things that I have done. Just because you're a nice guy, and I really appreciate that about you, so thank you. Uh, one of these days, if it ever makes it big, Nick, you will know. Yeah, all okay? right. I'll, I'll take, take it. care of you. How about that? No, um, you're a smart man because you're not on social media. Is there any place people can go? Is there, I mean, does your stuff live anywhere where people could just go and listen to it on demand? Or you I'm just, just
0: I'm notoriously you know? bad about self-marketing, so I'm just, I'm, people have told me in this, you know, recently in the last couple of years, so like, you know what? You're just going to have to suck it up and get out there and uh, and get on social. The only thing I have is a, a public um, Instagram, which is noise Freak underscore studio. And noisefreak is like my um, side company that, you know, I do voiceover through and things like that.
1: Okay. Noisefreak underscore studio. And that's on yeah, Instagram. Yeah, and that's
0: on Instagram. And I, I mean, I don't be disappointed if you go there because I post like very infrequently, but occasionally I'll post a picture of my dog or a (laughs) picture of something I'm recording, you know, or something like that.
1: Gotcha. Well, uh, I'll give you a heads up when this thing is going to air, uh, when it's going to post. And so that you can, uh, Hopefully post something new some new stuff up there <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, so people can go and check out some new stuff uh anything i've missed anything you want to address or, or clear up uh that we've uh, not covered no. adequately here today? no
0: i've taken up way too much time blabbing about myself
1: oh stop this has been awesome i really appreciate it nick daly the voice you hear all over the blaze the glenn beck program uh on this podcast at the mic i really appreciate your time today thanks so much man. yeah thanks for having me and now here's nick himself to take us out
0: This has been At The Mic with Keith, an independent podcast production. Look for At The Mic Show on Twitter to connect.